Good morning, friends. I want to thank you for encouraging me, for giving me the encouragement I needed through singing those songs to me. And now it's my privilege to return the favor and with God help me do what I can to encourage you about the worthiness of Jesus as he appears to us from Philippians chapter 1. I want to invite you now to take your Bibles and turn over there to Philippians chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 27 to 30. And I want to encourage you, if you don't have a Bible this morning, uh, we have provided some Bibles uh, that should be in most every pew or every row within arm's reach. Those are there for you to have for this morning to follow along as I work verse by verse through this part of, of Paul's letter to the Philippians. But they're also there because we'd love for you to have one if you don't own a copy of the Bible. We would love it if you would take that. That's our gift to you, and we would especially love the chance to talk to you about what you read there, about what we're going to speak about for the next little bit of our time together. Uh, Nothing would make us happier today than for you to take that with you and give us a chance to follow up on it. So please do if you you need one. This morning, friends, we're going to be in chapter 1 of Philippians, beginning in verse 27. Hopefully by now you've found that. I'm going to ask you, if you're able, to stand with me in honor of God's word while I read our verses for this morning. This is God's word to us. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Friends, this is God's word. You may be seated. Recently, I came across a a Washington Post article on an article about a video from YouTube that was maybe, I guess you could say, semi-viral from a few years back, Uh, a video in which a producer went around a college campus full of international students, a campus not here in the United States. It was, I believe, in Japan or in China. I don't remember exactly the country of origin, but it was a college that had a ton of internationals from all over the world, and this video producer decided to ask a bunch of different international students what they think about Americans. Not necessarily what they think about them, but how they can spot them. How can you tell that somebody's from America? A lot of people talked about clothing. Apparently our clothing is very distinctive. Uh, Some said that our clothing is way too big and baggy. Uh, Others put a different spin on that same point. Basically they said whatever they sleep in, they decide to wear around town. (laughs) T-shirts, sweatpants, or even gasp. Shorts, apparently shorts is a very American thing. Americans don't care what other people think about their clothes, said one student. Others talk about what Americans eat. Basically the fact that we're always eating, for one thing. They notice that we're always eating burgers. One student commented that you know an American because they'll be eating McDonald's even when they're not in America. Which is what, that's what they want. They go find a McDonald's and they eat, they eat a Big Mac. Others focused on our, our outlook and our attitude. Americans are confident they said. They seem so sure of themselves and outgoing, or as one Japanese gentleman put it, quote, Americans tend to be positive. They look pretty satisfied with their life. That's what makes them different from British people or Australian people. 
British people tend to be pessimistic like me, end quote. Others said you could spot us by our accents, by the fact that we don't carry umbrellas even when it's raining, by the fact that we've always got a water bottle, if not an umbrella, we do carry our water bottles with us everywhere we go. But probably my favorite description came from a fellow who said he could spot Americans because they, quote, smell like freedom. Every time I've traveled abroad, it's always been my goal to kind of blend in and kind of see the culture as it is on its own terms and just observe, and I don't think I've ever really succeeded. I mean, the reality is they can spot me coming from a mile away. You can take an American like me out of America, but you can't take the America out of an American like me. It carries with me wherever I go, shows up, sets me apart. For better or worse, I represent my home country wherever I happen to be. This is actually something like what Paul is hoping for among his friends in Philippi and for us too. He wants them, he wants us to be recognizable. Almost stereotypical. He'd be fine with some stereotypes applied to Christians. Living in one place, but belonging to another. Last week we saw, as Jonathan preached to us from the section right before this one, we saw what Paul lives for. Summed up by his claim that to live is Christ period. To live is Christ. Christ is everything for him. And and he's been talking to them up until this point in the letter about his situation and about how he's handling what's happening to him. But in this verse, in verse 27, he turns his attention from, from himself, from what his life was for, from the model he's been trying to set for them through his life, to them and what he wants for them. And he boils it all down to one central command that'll hang over the rest of the letter from this point forward. He boils down for them one thing that he wants for them, one thing that we're meant to do, and then gives them and gives us two ways we can do it. This morning, that's all I want to do. I want to show you the one thing we're meant to do, according to Paul, and the two ways that we can do it. Here's the one thing we're meant to do. According to Paul, all boiled down to this thing, verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. The one thing we're meant to do is to show through our lives that the gospel is precious. Now let me show you where I'm getting this. There's two things in this command that I just read. That first line, there's two things about this line that might be misunderstood if we aren't careful, but that once we understand them, unlock the meaning of this section of the letter and everything that's coming next. Two things you need to notice about this command. Here's the first one. You need to know what he means by manner of life. There's a word behind that phrase that doesn't come out in this translation. It's actually a word that's connected to to the the world of politics and citizenship. He uses a word that that literally would translate it would would be live as citizens. The command is not just let your manner of life as it comes through in our in our version, in the ESV that I'm using, but, but live as citizens. He's using a word that would have triggered something for his friends in Philippi. See, in Philippi, they were living in Greece, but they were citizens of Rome. All around them were not Roman citizens. They were just Roman subjects. In, in Philippi, everyone who lived there, they were citizens of Rome. They represented the home country here on foreign soil. Paul's using a word they would have known, only now he's turning it to their identity in Christ. Live as citizens now means live as if your citizenship is in the kingdom of heaven. They were used to thinking of themselves as a colony of one place in the middle of another place, and 
Paul's saying, essentially, that's the same thing. Christians live the same way. Your citizenship, he'll say in chapter three, is in heaven with a kingdom that your king has promised you. You might be in Philippi, you might be in Nashville, Tennessee, but you're supposed to live as citizens of heaven, as representatives of and subjects of that, that king who's still to come. But what do citizens of this kingdom look like? I mean, you can't tell them from what they wear. Not like t-shirts or shorts or sweatpants or head coverings or some sort of specific color or printed scarf. You can't tell them by their ethnicity or their hair color or their body type or anything else you might be able to see. You can't tell by how loud they are or how often they speak up or even what language they speak. You can't tell them by what food they eat, like McDonald's burgers, or you can't tell them by what food they don't eat, like pork or caffeine. You can't recognize them from any of the signs that might be typical of other citizenship. So how are you gonna recognize someone who belongs to that kingdom? And that's the second thing I want you to see in this command. So the first thing to notice is that when he says manner of life, he means your citizenship. It's gotta show up, live as citizens. The second thing to notice about this command is what he means by worthy of the gospel. Here's where your citizenship shows up. What does it mean to be worthy of the gospel? I wanna slow down and talk about this phrase because if we get this wrong, we won't just miss out on the chance to live lives that are worthy of the gospel, friends. We might actually miss out on the gospel itself. Because when I, when I first see the phrase worthy of the gospel, where my mind immediately goes is to some sort of standard that I gotta meet, some sort of law to obey or fulfill. I think about the opening rituals of my son's Cub Scout meetings, you know, where they, where they open up with the scout law and the scout oath. You know, a worthy scout is one who lives up to that law. Wherever he goes, in theory, you can spot a boy scout not just by his nice blue uniform and all those patches that he's earned, but by the fact that he's loyal and helpful and thrifty and clean and so on. It can seem like that's what Paul's saying. Like, be worthy of the gospel. Meet that law. But friends, the gospel isn't a law at all. Christians are, are not those who obey all the rules this is not some standard to meet. It's not a list of things you have to go and do. The gospel simply means good news. It's an announcement of something that's already been done, not something that you're asked to do, something that's been done for you. More specifically, the gospel is news of what God, the same God who made you, the same God whose rules you have rejected in favor of your own, of what this God has done because he loves you to account for your sin and to give you new life. The gospel is the message that he did not spare his own son, but sent him here to live and die for you so that you could be defined by the beautiful righteousness of Jesus and not by the sins that you have carried around with you for all of your life. And so that you could have a new life that you don't have to earn for yourself, but that is given to you as a brand new gift, free and no strings attached, except repentance, acknowledging that what you were doing isn't working, and that now you will follow and serve him for all your days. This is the gospel, friends. It's news about something God did for you, not something you're meant to do for him. So being worthy of the gospel can't mean being good enough to deserve it. What does Paul have in mind? I believe what he's saying is that we're meant to live our lives in a way that shows that this gospel is precious, that this gospel is everything to us. A life worthy of the gospel is, a, is, is one with the gospel at its center, 
One, one with the gospel as its only hope, as the one central truth that shapes how we see everything and how we treat everyone. It's a life that says the gospel of Jesus Christ is worth everything that I have. If you wanna know what it means to live worthy of the gospel, flip over this afternoon to chapter three of this letter and read Paul's description of how he sees himself now on the backside of Jesus before he lived through his resume and it was an impressive one. Now he considers it all loss. It may as well be nothing. In fact, he compares it to a pile of dung compared to the value of knowing Jesus and having him as his savior and his Lord. A life worthy of the gospel is a life that shows there's nothing better. There's nothing more precious than Christ and what he's offered to me. There's one thing we're meant to do. Paul boils it all down in verse 27. Only this. You wanna know what your life is for? Here it is. Live to show that the gospel of Jesus Christ is precious. So how do we do that? I mean, I need help. I need concreteness. I need somebody to just tell me where to start. Do you? Paul knows who he's dealing with. He knows that he's, he's writing to people who are gonna need that kind of help. And really the rest of the letter, one way to think about the rest of the letter is, is to think about it as a series of examples of how to, how to make your life aimed at showing the preciousness of Jesus. One after another after another. He's, he's gonna give us, give us what we need to put this into practice. But he, but he starts right here with two examples that come in verses 27, 28, and 29. We've seen one thing we're meant to do to show through our lives together that Jesus is precious. Now, let me show you two ways that we can do it. We do this through our unity and we do this through our suffering. I want you to look with me at Paul's flow of thought. Let's go back to the text. You've got one big command in verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. There's the command. Then immediately after this, he says, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you what? That you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Two examples. Be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that what I'll hear of you are two things. Friends, those two things are, are, are what shows the preciousness, the worthiness of the gospel. And those two things are our unity in Christ and our suffering for Jesus' sake. We show the gospel is precious through our unity. It's the first one I wanna show you. Look back at verse 27. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that I'll hear that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. He wants them doing the same work he's been doing. The work of, of working into, deep into our hearts, deep into the details of our lives, what it is to have Jesus for a savior and a Lord. Working as he's doing 
to get this message of Christ out as far as possible so that everyone has a chance to enjoy it. That's what he means by by striving together for the faith of the gospel. He he starts with this standing firm, be unified around, hold tight to this gospel, but then it's almost like that's not enough. He adds to it this image of striving, of leveraging from that place for the advancement of the gospel and doing it all together. He's he's, he's actually borrowing an image here from the, the world of sports. When he says striving together, he's using an athletic term. I'm imagining one of those rugby scrums, you know, where the whole team has got their arms locked around each other's shoulders. And honestly, I I have no idea what they're trying to do. It looks like a complete mess. Have you ever seen this on some sort of of alternative sports network? You know, maybe when you're flipping around the channels, you'll see it. Probably didn't last very long because, again, not much is going on. But but, but what what they've got is clearly an entire team all together aiming at one objective. They're all locked in and they're striving with every bit of strength they can muster. My goodness, they're trying so hard and all trying together. Every person's got his own role to play or so I'm told. But they're all working for the same goal. And, and, and Paul is saying, Paul is saying the, the faith of the gospel, getting that out, it, it's worth that kind of effort, that kind of united focus. It's precious enough to bring us together despite all the other things that might separate us. And it's precious enough to hold our attention and to direct our energy even when so many other things about us might pull us away. Friends, I'm often asked by folks, especially who are new to our church, how they can get involved in our church, how they can contribute or serve in some way. And it's one of my favorite things to be asked, for the record. I love it when people ask that. But here's one of my favorite answers. I like to go over all the needs that we have. There are many. To talk about the fact that we could use your help with greeting, with the security team. We need help with logistics and registration. Lord willing, soon enough, we'll need help with childcare again. By all means, we'd love to put you to work. But, but, but here's the way I like to zero it in. The most important thing you can do to serve our church is to invest in our unity around the gospel. The most important way anybody ever serves our church is to lock arms and strive together with the other members of this church for the faith of the gospel. That means looking for every opportunity you've got to press the gospel into each other's lives, and it means looking for every opportunity you've got to share this gospel with friends and neighbors around the world. Friends, the first promise that we make when we join our church as members, the very first promise in the covenant is that we will work and pray for the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's a quote from another one of Paul's letters, but it's also based on what he says here in verse 27. Uh, Let me push this, this calling one step further. Let me go one layer deeper into what I'm asking for from you as your friend and and one of your pastors. I wanna appeal directly to you for your help on two fronts. One thing to work and pray for, and one thing to work and pray against. Would you work and pray with us for a greater gospel urgency in our church? There's so many things about our church that encourage me, so many obvious signs that God is with us, that he's among us, that he's working and helping us. There's so many traces of his beauty in you and in how I see you loving one another, I, I honestly, friends, I've never been more encouraged about the health of our church than I am right now. But we are always a work in progress. 
We're not yet what we will be, not yet what, we, what God will make us to be. And when I think about areas where I long for growth in us, when I look at the, 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 the sweep of, of what I see in our church, this one is near the top of my prayer list and I'd love to have it on yours. I, I want to see us marked by a greater urgency about sharing the precious gospel that is our life with precious people who need it as badly as we do. I, I want to I see us as a church culture where all of us are invested in this work, where it's not work we outsource to the professionals, where it's not work we, we celebrate in others as, as kind of their thing, where the gospel is so precious to us that we just can't help talking about it. Like we talk nonstop about a new restaurant that we found or a new grandbaby who's just been born, where people are so precious to us that we just can't stand the thought that they would live and die apart from Christ, where we get that the stakes really are this high, that there are no stakes higher than the stakes of the gospel. So we have a hard time talking about other things besides this, where we'll find our conversations just naturally drifting into gospel territory. Friends, the gospel is worthy of this kind of urgency. When we have this urgency in ourselves, we say to anyone who's paying attention, this is precious. There's nothing more precious than this. It's everything. It's life and death. Would you work and pray with us for a greater gospel urgency in our church culture? It depends on you, friends, and what God is doing in and through you. And would you work and pray with us against division that distracts us from the gospel? You don't need me to tell you that we live in a deeply polarized time and place. And the polarization that we see all around us out there threatens us in here too. But friends, for precisely that reason, we have a precious opportunity in front of us. We've got an opportunity to show how precious Christ is to us and to put his preciousness on display from our little colony here, our colony of heaven, our alternative society, put it on display to anyone who wants to look at us. A few years back, uh, Saturday Night Live did a hilarious skit that they called a Thanksgiving miracle. I'm guessing some of you know where I'm going with this already. The setup is a big Thanksgiving feast, a table full of diverse family and friends. They're from different generations. There are some old and some young and some in between. There are different ethnicities around the table and, and shall we say, sharply different perspectives and persuasions about issues from immigration to policing to partisan politics and whatever else was in the news the particular year this sketch was made. I don't even remember what year it was. The table host has barely welcomed everybody before the obnoxious comments start flowing and comebacks close on their heels. I mean, it gets real, real fast. Inside of a minute, they're shouting at one another, at each other's throats. Meanwhile, a little girl has had enough. She slips away from the dinner table and slips over to the turntable and puts on what, has at that, was, what was at that time a chart-topping almost worship-inducing, international smash hit song, Hello, by Adele. From the first notes on the piano, all faces are immediately transfixed. From the time when Adele opens her mouth and utters her first hello, they're all singing passionately along with her, word for word. Those who were just a moment ago at each other's throats are now holding hands, hands clasped. Those who were shouting each other down 
hurling terrible insults at one another, are now singing passionately while gazing in each other's eyes. They are now all of a sudden made one. You might say they were striving now side by side for the depth and beauty of this song. It's a Thanksgiving miracle. Nobody's backed down on their views. Their disagreements are still important, but the, but the depth and significance of what has separated them, well, it only adds to the miracle's impact to the weight of what's just happened. How precious must this Adele be if she can bring these people together? Now, now friends, especially in these crazy polarized times when our genuine and important differences with each other are set aside for our shared passion? A passion for Jesus and the work of making him known? Well, that is a sign of our true citizenship. That makes the world stand up and take notice. Our citizenship isn't here. This world is good. There's so much beauty in it. The people who fill it are precious to God and to us. But this world is not our home. It is passing away. And, and, and a world is coming where, where we will always see eye to eye. Where Christ is all in all. And our hearts belong to that world already. That world is our home. And right now, our testimony to the preciousness of Jesus is at stake in our unity around him and the work of making him known. When we divide from one another, you know what we say to the world? Something more precious than Jesus is at stake. That's why we had to divide. We just couldn't keep going together anymore. But when we hold together around Jesus, you know what we say? Hey, these other issues matter. They're important. But nothing compares to what we have in him. Our unity shows the gospel is precious. And in a world like this one, in a year like this one, few things will make that message more clear. Would you help us work and pray against division that could distract us from this? Friends, there's one more thing I wanna show you in these last few minutes that I've got. Paul's giving us two ways that we can do what we're meant to do. We're meant to show with our lives that the gospel is precious, to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. One way we do that is through our unity. Another way we do that, a second way we do that is through our suffering. Go back with me to verses 28, 27 and 28. Did you notice he's giving us two examples? Again, he wants our lives to be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That means he wants to hear of us that we're standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side together. That's what he wants to hear. Then verse 28. And a second thing he wants to hear, a second sign of the worthiness of the gospel to us is that we're not frightened in anything by your opponents. Seriously? Not frightened by your opponents? I mean, Paul is in prison when he writes this. They've got a good reason to be frightened by their opponents. These guys mean business. And, and not only is he in prison now, in Rome presumably, the last time he was in Philippi, he was in prison there too. In fact, he got dragged by, the, by, the, by an angry mob into the marketplace where the magistrates turn them loose to beat him with rods before they throw him into prison. Like, these guys are serious. 
They mean business. Don't be frightened by your opponents, he says. And not because your opponents aren't frightening. They are. The reason they should, you shouldn't be frightened by them comes in verse 29. You see it? For, the reason you shouldn't be frightened in anything by your opponents, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Here's what he's saying. When you suffer for Jesus, as I expect you to do, you are receiving a gift of grace from the same place that you got your faith. It is a gift of grace. That's the word granted. Not just to believe in him. That's an obvious gift of grace. But it is also a gift of grace to you to suffer for his sake. How can this be? Because, friends, citizens of this kingdom live to show that the gospel is precious. That's all you want. That's the main thing that drives you in life. And few things will make that case so clearly as joyful suffering. And when your driving passion, when your one thing is to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, then when you suffer for Jesus, God is giving you exactly what you want most of all. I know it's tough to apply texts like this to those of us living here in America because we've been spared the costs that have been so normal and expected in other times and places. But I believe we need this word about the gift of suffering as an opportunity to show how precious Jesus is for at least two reasons. We need it because it's a reminder that we should pray for our brothers and sisters who are receiving this gift of suffering right now around the world. That's the first reason we need it. This is not hypothetical, friends. Our brothers and sisters in faith, those with whom we will stand around his throne praising him forever, are dying for their faith right now. An organization that tracks this uh, the, the spread of persecution around the world called Open Doors USA. It has a website with lots of good information on this, they, and lots of good stats. Uh, just this last year, friends, according to the numbers they have, which are not comprehensive, nearly 4,500 churches or Christian buildings were attacked. Nearly that same number of Christians were unjustly arrested, held, or imprisoned. More than 1,700 Christians were abducted for faith-related reasons, and 4,761 Christians that they know about were killed for their faith just this past year. That's roughly 400 Christians per month. That's roughly 13 Christians per day. That number included four men brutally murdered in Indonesia the morning after most of us had just celebrated Thanksgiving. Three of them were beheaded. Another was burned in his home. That number included at least 11 who were killed in Nigeria on Christmas Eve just last month in a village known to be home to many Christians, where Boko Haram surged into them as, as they were uh, into the village as they were preparing to celebrate Christmas and kidnapped eleven or killed eleven, kidnapped seven more, including the pastor of their church, burning their church, burning the Christian hospital in this in this town, and stealing all the food they'd stored up to distribute through the village the next day on Christmas. Friends, this is just a couple of examples that I found in a quick internet search. If you care about the spread of the gospel around the world, one of the most strategic things you can do is pray for the faith of our brothers and sisters who are dying for Jesus. Because when they die, when they shed their blood willingly, what they say to everyone who sees them is, he's worth it. When they count their lives cheaply, 
How precious must be this Christ who's at the center of it all. And from the very beginning, among the most influential tools we have ever had for the spread of the gospel around the, around the world, God has given us the shed blood of his precious children. It works. They're doing it right now. Pray for them. And we need to be reminded for our own selves not to be afraid. Thanks be to God we live in a place where we haven't had to sacrifice what they have. Let's pray together that that continues. It's been good for our country and good for the spread of the gospel that we have not had to face these obstacles. But sometimes I, see, I notice what seems like a swelling fear that it won't always be this way. From legislation to court decisions to election results, from time to time there, there are signs that our environment won't always be so accommodating to Christians. And besides the legal side, I know that in, in places where you live and in some of your jobs, you actually may be penalized one way or another sooner rather than later for being faithful to the things Jesus has called you to do or not to do. That may be true, and if it happens, it'll be unfortunate in a way. But friends, you have no reason to be afraid. Because no matter what, worst case scenario, if you suffer for Jesus, God is giving you a precious gift of grace. He's giving you a chance to show how precious this gospel really is. And as a citizen of that kingdom, this is what you live for. You live for the chance to show it's worthy. Any loss for Christ is just teeing you up to come in and whack it. It's a softball pitch to you to smash as far as you possibly can. It is setting you up for the thing you live and breathe to do. Why be afraid of that? Live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel. Striving together side by side for a faith that's worth that effort and not frightening anything by your opponents. This is where, this is where they'll see the truth about him. Let's pray together that he'll give us the strength to follow. Father, we know that we are weak and all too often distracted and divided over the things of this world. We ask for your help to tell the truth about Jesus through the way that we live. We pray for unity. We pray against division. And we pray for a confidence and fearlessness in the face of suffering so that everyone will know that this precious Jesus who is our life is worthy of theirs too. We ask this in the name of Jesus, amen.